Hey guys, you're listening to episode 79 of the Finish Line Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. Today we're talking to George Green, CEO of Water Mission. Hey there, welcome to the show. My name is Keelan and I'm here with my co-host and brother Cody. Today we're talking to George Green, CEO of Water Mission. Water Mission is an engineering-focused charity that aims to bring technical excellence to water solutions all over the world. They work on long-term community development projects and also respond to acute crises for urgent water needs as well. And they also serve as a technical support for many other organizations working in the clean water space. Stay tuned to hear all George had to share about the water crisis and the work Water Mission does today. Before we get started, do you ever wish you could find more people who are passionate about generosity, serving their communities, and advancing the gospel? Do you wish you could interact with some of our fantastic podcast guests? Well, we have growing community groups on Facebook and LinkedIn where you can do just that. You don't need to have a financial finish line to join. All you need is a passion for glorifying Christ with whatever God's given you to manage. Look for the link in our show notes to learn more. And with that, let's get to the interview. All right, we're here today with George Green from Water Mission. George, thanks so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Keelan. Great to be with you guys. Why don't you kick us off just telling us a little bit about some of your own story and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, it's a bit of a wild story. So just personally, I grew up in a very stable family environment. My parents were both committed believers and very intentional about raising me and my sister in the church and don't really have an exciting testimony when it comes to accepting Christ and my personal story on that front. I think it happened at a Billy Graham video or movie that was uh, playing at a local theater that I went to with the church youth group. So, but yeah, so, but very loving home, very caring home. And our family was involved in a number of local ministries and supporting things. Obviously, things like church attendance were just kind of understood and even intentional plans of walking through the Bible on an annual basis as a family were just kind of things that we grew up with that were just kind of a part of life and natural. So very fortunate with that kind of upbringing. At the same time, my parents, when I was four, we moved to Charleston, South Carolina. My father, his background, he's a PhD chemical engineer, and he had a promising career that was unfolding with Exxon Research and Design. But that career path would have had us kind of going all over the world. And my father and my mother, both from the South, and they were wanting to have a place for family to be able to put down roots and not to feel like we didn't have a home. And so when I was four, my father and mother uh, decided to leave Exxon and move to Charleston. And they started a small wastewater environmental laboratory just the two of them. This was in 1981. And when my parents would share the story, the ultimate goal with that business was really just to provide and allow them to raise a family and and provide for the family. But that business took off and grew at, I think it was a 40% annual growth rate for like 20 years. So incredibly successful business. It was a for-profit business, but it was run on Christian business principles, which are pretty good business principles, treat others the way that you want to be treated and And so uh, fast forward to I grew up in that business. I don't know if I actually started working summers in the fourth grade. I don't know if it was legal, 
Those were questions that weren't <laughs> asked, you know, instilled a very strong work ethic. And I don't know that there was necessarily an intentional plan as this, you know, when I was pressed into labor. And you might also ask, what do you start doing in the fourth grade at the summer job? And it was pretty basic stuff, emptying trash cans and cleaning toilets. And so as every summer, I worked in the family business. And this was a, an environmental laboratory that grew extensively that started out focused on wastewater. But by the time it was finished, it was a comprehensive lab, tested everything you could think of, soil, water, air, radioactive, you name it. And so as I grew and as I matured, I would be given more responsibility. And basically, my upbringing in my summers, I worked kind of through the family business. And so fast forward to graduating from high school, went off to college, and my dad said, go get a degree in chemical engineering. And when you finish, you can come back and have a shot at joining us in the family business. And so I went to Clemson and was pursuing my degree in chemical engineering. And in 1998, a hurricane hit Honduras, Hurricane Mitch. And the question is about me, but the reason that a hurricane hitting Honduras was something that landed on our radar, as you think about God's plan for our family, my sister, who was three years older than I am, had already graduated college and she'd actually moved to Honduras and had been living there for a year by the time I went and visited her there, my parents went down and spent time with her. Ultimately, she was in Honduras for two years from 1996 to 1998. And she moved back to the States two or three months before this hurricane hit. And so when it hit, it was something that was very much on our radar. You know, when you see storms on the other side of the world, the devastation doesn't necessarily grip your heart. But when you know the people that have been impacted and the people that are suffering, it's very different. And so watching this hurricane hit Honduras, it was the worst disaster in the recorded history of the country. I think they had over 75 inches of rain over a six-day period. And things like entire sections of cities were washed away. Just an incredibly devastating event. And my dad tells a story that he really felt God put a burden on his heart that he needed to do something about it. But he wasn't sure what. He was pretty frustrated with that as well because, you know, how are you going to help somebody in a country that's so far away? And our connections at the time, we had some church connections and ministry connections that we'd been supporting in the country. And my dad reached out to one of these ministry connections and said, you know, how can we help? We know a little bit about water. And he also jokes that when he sent this as an email, that having visited Honduras before Hurricane Mitch, you were lucky to have power when you were there, much less power turns on. And then at some point, you know, internet establishes itself. And those were also back in the days of dial-up internet. I don't know if anybody even remembers that, but that <laughs> whopping speed of 52 kilobytes per second. And I share that because when we were in Honduras, you know, pre-Mitch, the speeds we were experiencing with dial-up were more like two kilobytes per second, right? So the idea was that, you know, maybe this email would never actually get read or seen, but he you know, stepped out and answering this burden that God put on his heart. He had a response back within less than 24 hours, and the request was to help with drinking water and six communities, a community of a 1,000 people, another community of 1,500 people. And my parents' company was a services company. They tested things. They designed things. There was an engineering firm aspect to it as well. But they didn't actually have products, much less water treatment systems. But at the same time, water treatment's not that complicated. And my dad's background in engineering and the resources that were with this highly technically focused business, that was an easy thing to say, well, we could figure out how to support this need. And so he and my mother actually mobilized their for-profit business and ultimately built from scratch, six skid-mounted drinking water systems by just going around Home Depot, Lowe's, the hardware stores, and picking up parts. 
and they built these systems. And somehow we actually talked our way onto a C-5 Galaxy, a U.S. Air Force, the largest airplane. We have an Air Force base here in Charleston where we're based. We've got an incredibly generous community and here that's a very hospitable place. But And I say somehow we talked our way onto that airplane because we've responded to every major disaster now over the last close to 25 years, and we've never been able to get on an airplane like that since. So it was obvious God's (laughs) hand was, you know, opening doors that shouldn't have opened. So those six systems ended up being built. And then my parents with a team of 19 volunteers flew to Honduras and installed them. So I was a junior, wrapping up my junior year at Clemson in chemical engineering when this was happening. They went down and coming out of that experience they had their eyes open to the global water crisis. And the idea with the global water crisis is it's about a third of the global population doesn't have access to safe water. It's about half the global population doesn't have a sanitary place to go to the bathroom. So when you look at those things, the health impact is enormous. And they saw this and they responded to this disaster and coming out of it, they said, you know, this is something we can do something about coming from this technical background and understanding this is a solvable problem. We don't have to go research a solution. We have some of the technologies that we use today, and we've had safe water in this country for over 100 years. And some of the technologies that we use today were originally pioneered by like the Romans, right? So, so we don't need to go and invent new things. We can solve it with what we know already. And so that really just kind of gripped their heart. And they came out of that experience and sat down and just kind of had this, what we refer to now as a halftime experience. And I'm assuming that you're familiar with that. They didn't know that word at the time, but they ended up reading Bob Buford's book, And it just felt like the book was written for them. They had experienced incredible success. They didn't need to continue to build their business. And so ultimately, they were given this thought around what is our halftime opportunity, specifically looking at water and wastewater. And one of the big issues was that their son was wrapping up education in chemical engineering and was going to come back to run the family business. (laughs) So my junior year, I think they'd been processing this for probably about a year when they came up and sat down with me and said, you know, we really feel that this is where God's leading us. And what do you think about this? And it was really interesting because it wasn't something that really caused me any angst or anxiety or anything. In some ways, it almost felt kind of freeing to a certain extent. And in that conversation, they also said, you feel God's leading you in this direction as well and discerning uh, and have an interest in joining us. That's something that we'd love to talk further about. And so I I went ahead and finished my uh, degree and coming out of school. Ultimately, I felt that God was calling me to join them with this. And so during that time when I was finishing up my degree, they were working through selling their business. It was a very complicated financial transaction. That was when they first threw, they'd been very fortunate. They'd been introduced to uh, Ron Blue, uh, Ron Blue Trust, and so had uh, solid biblical financial advisors and supporting them. And through that and those connections, Ron Blue brought in the National Christian Foundation because it was an incredibly complicated transaction. And, and, you know, those are the kinds of things that NCF specializes in. They were going through that process as I was finishing up my degree and just kind of setting the foundation in place for the start of water missions. And so I started out coming out of school. I was one of two employees with a water mission, the first two. And then my parents were non-compensated, but basically full-time. So they were volunteers, which was interesting because I didn't even, the concept of volunteering was something that I didn't really even understand at that time, much less what they were doing. And that was how we got started. I have actually a very neat anniversary, work anniversary. 
my uh, anniversary with work is actually the day one of the founding of the ministry when we received our 501c3 status. So on uh, July 1st, 2001, Water Mission officially came into existence. And it also was my first day of legal employment, I guess. So <laughs> so that's kind of how we got started, which is wild too today, because as you think about, we literally came from nothing, working with my parents and the build out of the ministry And today, I think we're somewhere around 800 full-time staff operating in 10 different countries around the world. And we believe we've impacted the lives of over 8 million people. And that number is growing annually in the number of lives impacted. And just a really beautiful thing. Yeah, George, that's really, really cool story. And weaves together so many different things that we talk about here on the podcast from, you know, kind of a spirit led response to something, you know, your parents, their hearts broke. You were obviously involved with that, and God used a tragedy to birth something really incredible in Water Mission. And then also, we've had several people who work with Ron Blue Trust and people who work with NCF that we've gotten to hear from them about the work that they do. And Water Mission has both of those organizations to thank for some of the guidance and advice that put your parents in a position to facilitate the sale of a company and the founding of the ministry. So it's really cool to see all of that come together in the story that you shared. Can you just summarize what is the mission statement of Water Mission today and what does the day-to-day work look like? Sure. Yeah. So we typically talk about our vision, mission, and values kind of all in the same grouping. And our vision is that all people have safe water and an opportunity to experience God's love. And so as we think about, we see that the greatest commandment, as that question was answered by Jesus, to love God with everything that you are. He also didn't stop there. He went on and said, and like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. And so, you know, we see that we've been gifted with some unique skills in being able to address water and sanitation needs. And so that's where we see we're living that out. And we use that as an opportunity to build relationships with people that ultimately allow us to talk about who God is and what God's plan is for them and his desire is for them in their lives. And it's a really interesting dynamic. Over the years, we've seen there seems to be a lot of separation between word and deed ministries. You've got folks that are doing one or the other, but you don't necessarily see that intentional combining of things. And if you, as you look at Jesus's model for ministry, it was both. It wasn't one or the other. So that's the basis with our vision and our mission is a little bit more um, kind of pointed. And so our mission is to honor God by developing, implementing, and sharing best-in-class safe water solutions that transform as many lives as possible as quickly as possible. As believers, there's some kind of coded language in there, specifically that word transform. When we talk about transforming lives, when we talk about a water project, there's a physical aspect to that, but there's also a spiritual aspect to that as well. The other thing with that, too, is as an engineering organization, we see it's a really odd dynamic where we work. And there are a couple of contributing factors to this odd dynamic. One, we're kind of forced into the body of a charity. So our legal structure is a very different one from a for-profit company. And if you think about from a performance standpoint, with a for-profit company, the person that pays for the product and the service is the one that gets it. And so as a company, if you don't deliver, your customers are going to go somewhere else. So that's a very healthy environment that essentially drives efficiency. It drives accountability. And the dynamic with charities, the people that pay for the work that you do, 
are not the ones that receive it. And when you decouple those things, it can create a lot of issues, not like intentionally, but at the same time is a dynamic that has an impact. The other thing that is a real struggle is, as you think about what I said earlier, we've had water in this country for over 100 years. So we know that it's something that's possible. As you look at the systems that are in place in this country. We have schools that are teaching people how to design solutions appropriately, engineering uh, curriculum. People come out of those schools and then they go work in engineering firms that are governed by rules and regulations that ultimately drive quality and deliverable and make sure that we have water that's safe to consume when we turn on the tap in our homes. And so we know that this is possible. When you look at where we work, They may have those rules and regulations, but they're not enforced. And so when you look at kind of those two dynamics of the charitable environment and then essentially kind of the Wild West of where we work, where anything goes, that becomes kind of a really dangerous area that tolerates inefficiency and maybe not the best approaches to how things need to get solved. And I don't know what your perspective is on the charitable world, but there's a lot of talk about the developing countries are littered with failed projects. And there's not necessarily a lot of conversation around that. The reason for that is because the approach that's being taken is one that isn't a disciplined approach. I touched on vision and mission. Our values were boiled down into three values. And our values guide everything that we do. We think about our values as kind of the safeguards on the road that keep us headed in the right direction. And while our values are not necessarily prioritized, we lead with the first value of love and the idea of loving God and loving our neighbor. And then our other two values are excellence and integrity. And as people come and join Water Mission, we have very intentional conversations that People need to be thinking about their own individual purpose and what God's called them to. They also have their own individual values, and they may have other values that are not Water Mission's values, but they do need to have at least have the same values that uh, Water Mission has. And so personally, one of uh, my values is hospitality. You know, as we think about the differences between our work and our personal or our calling and the overlap with the work that we do. This has been an area that we've gone very deep and we've been very fortunate to have some incredible partners that have come alongside us to help us in just kind of honing in on these things and going deeper and making sure that we've been able to build a really intentional culture. And so engaging groups with like best Christian workplaces to have some understanding of the benchmark measurement of, you know, how do our staff feel about how we exist as a ministry. We've also been very fortunate to have a relationship with a group called Life Shape, which is one of the Kathy Family Foundations that basically takes the business teachings and leadership development tools that Chick-fil-A has developed and pours those into a handful of different ministries. They introduced us to a group called Lead Like Jesus, which is co-founded by a fellow named Ken Blanchard. And at one point, that was a household name. I think it still is. But, you know, just some of the best books in leadership development. And the idea with that is that, you know, how important it is, is we just think about getting our foundation and our structure right. I haven't really even talked about what we do with water projects. This is more just how we've been trying to intentionally grow the ministry for a couple of reasons. And also even folks like Peter Greer and his book, Mission Drift, and just what a gift that is to groups like us. As a result of going through that book internally, 
we actually established a committee on our board that's called the Mission True Committee. And the idea with that is to make sure that we have at the highest level oversight so that we don't drift from our faith in the work that we do. So back to the work, we've been very intentional. When we talk to people about who we are, we describe Water Mission as a Christian engineering charity. And we lead with being a Christian ministry because we do get a lot of people that are drawn to us based on the humanitarian nature of what we do. And we want to make sure up front that they understand that we're a Christian ministry. Now, at the same time, we don't just beat them over the head with a Bible constantly. Our goal is to be invitational in our approach as we engage with people. And it's been also really interesting because over the years, we've had some really deep relationships with a number of secular corporate partners that, I don't know, starting 10 years ago, I started getting really concerned that we would see these relationships ultimately end because you don't see the secular world partnering with Christian ministries. And the really amazing thing that we've seen with that is these relationships have actually gone deeper. Over the years, the uh, seeing these relationships go deeper, at one point, I don't know if you ever have an experience where you're reading the Bible and you read the same scripture over and over and over again, and all of a sudden there's a completely like different death, like meaning that comes out of it that is just like going from looking at something in 2D to 3D. I had that experience with Proverbs 22, 29, I believe. Proverbs 22, most people know that the opening verse is a good name is worth more than great riches as a parent. And most people know Proverbs 22, 6, which is train up child in the way he should go. And, and when he's old, he won't depart from it. Not many people look at verse 29. Verse 29 is, and it's an odd one. It says, do you see a man skilled in his work? He'll serve before kings. He won't serve before common men. And, you know, I think the first time I read that, I'm like, okay, well, that's interesting. And it wasn't until this kind of deepening relationship with these corporate partners that we had that I was like, you know what? We're actually seeing that lived out because of the intentionality that we have with doing high quality work and making sure our projects work. Because these partners that we have, they're not coming to us because we're a Christian ministry. If anything, that's a hindrance for some of these corporate secular partners. What we're seeing is that the intentionality around quality and just doing things with excellence, that is what is drawing folks in and it's allowing us to have a seat at the table as a Christian ministry. So um, that's been a really beautiful thing that I would also just use that as an encouragement. I know that whoever's listening to this podcast and whatever professional role that you have, that you know your work is your witness. There's a tremendous opportunity there. And just doing quality work that will open doors. So Christian engineering charity. So Christian, just kind of trying to make that known. But again, we're trying to make people uncomfortable if that's not an area where they gravitate. At the same time, we do make sure it's clear that everything that we do, there is a ministry aspect to it. We're not just a humanitarian organization. And so some of the corporate partners that we have, they will maybe make donations to us and ask that the funds only go towards water projects and we have to go raise other funds to do the church engagement work that we do in the communities that we serve, which is fine with us. By far, the majority of the expenses associated with doing water projects. That other keyword, engineering, is really, we do joke that that's the one everybody gets nervous talking about, not talking about Christianity. But uh, um, engineering is kind of a key differentiator. If you look at charitable 
organizations, you don't see a lot of technically focused. There's almost a void in the space. And specifically, when we talk about doing water projects, again, as you think about, you know, how does that work in a country like the United States? There's a very um, structured and well-built and vetted system that's in place. And so we've been intentional about trying to take that same kind of approach with what we do into the spaces where we work where we basically have to regulate ourselves, essentially. And then uh, charity, we are a 501c3, and we also specify that when we do our projects, we serve all people. There are not faith requirements associated with being able to come have access to safe water, but there certainly are tremendous opportunities for ministry with the work that we do. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what a project or two looks like, maybe some success stories that you guys have seen in recent years the kind of work that you do on the ground. Yeah, so that's actually where I was headed. (laughs) If you think about needs, we meet uh, needs in three different kinds of contexts. And when we talk about needs, we're focused on water and sanitation. So the one that's probably the easiest for folks to think about is long-term community development projects. So we go into rural communities of, you know, a thousand to 10,000, maybe more people that they have some kind of water source. People can't exist without water, but it typically is contaminated. And essentially what we do is we build out a mini municipal water system. And so we deal with finding a water source, some level of treatment, storage, and then distribution. This is pretty basic stuff. The key kind of skills to be able to go do that well are one, making sure that we have good engineering with the solutions that are being designed that also has an understanding of cultural context and supply chain limitations. And so when we talk about you've got lots of engineers in a country like the United States, having them go and design a solution for a project in Honduras or a project in Kenya without actually understanding what kind of supplies are available to be able to go do the work, there's a pretty big disconnect with that. The second piece is that when we go and do that kind of project, that we have boots on the ground that are overseeing it, that understand the design and make sure that the design is implemented in accordance with the design. And that might seem like a no-brainer, but that's a huge gap. The places that we're going and working are not places that most people want to go. And so you have to be very intentional in wanting to do that. And then the third piece, this actually took us the longest to get our heads around, was all the people processes and systems that are necessary to run it and maintain it. So as you think about when we go and put a project in place, I'm assuming you guys pay a water bill. That utility has a governance board. It has staff. There's a management system that is in place that makes sure that you continue to have water. You pay your bill and water continues to flow. And so we're basically kind of taking that same approach where we will donate the cost of the project to actually go do the work. And then we'll get all that structure in place in the community. And then at the end tap, when people come to get water, they pay for water. And that money goes into a reinvestment mechanism that covers the cost, covers maintenance, And it also has some savings goals for, you know, what happens in five, six, seven years when they need to replace something that has a natural life of that time, but also has a significant cost. And so this is more kind of comprehensive planning and intentionality with the approach. So community development is kind of the most in-depth that we do, and that's on one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, we do disaster relief work. And disaster relief is basically get in and get water flowing and do that as fast as you possibly can. So we do have active work taking place in the Ukraine. We also responded to the earthquakes in Turkey. When you think about when the disasters happen, whether they're natural or man-made, and people are displaced, 
one of the number one needs, if not the number one need, is access to safe water. Typically what happens in disasters is people get moved into camps and into consolidated areas because it's easier to distribute food and aid as opposed to everybody scattered. The problem with that is that can turn into a sanitation nightmare because people are still going to the bathroom. So if you're not dealing with the sanitation side of things, and if you're not protecting water sources, then you can have things like cholera outbreaks. And that's where people can literally die within a matter of hours. So we've got community development on the one hand, disaster relief on the other. And the other kind of big thing that we've been getting into over the last going on 10 years is something that is kind of in the middle of disaster relief and community development, and that's working in refugee camps. And these are rough locations. We have two major focus areas with refugees, Western Tanzania and Northern Uganda. In both of these situations, we started out in the disaster mindset. There was a crisis in Western Tanzania Back in 2015, 380,000 people fled in from Burundi into Tanzania, and literally what was a field got turned into a home to 170,000 people. And we got into that camp with emergency water systems and just getting water flowing and really hadn't done a ton of stuff with refugees at that time. But as we got in and got water flowing, the problem with refugee camps is that the issue is whatever the crisis was that was in Burundi. And a lot of times, you know, these people never go home. And the average stay in a refugee camp is estimated to be 17 years, which as you think about being uprooted, leaving your home, and then going and spending the next 17 years of your life in a refugee camp. I share that one because it's usually something, I think people know these things are happening, but sometimes you've got to contextualize things so that people can really understand it. So I share it for that reason. But the other reason is, is because that also means that our approach can't be a disaster mindset in a refugee camp. We have to be building, thinking about like a community development type project in terms of what we implement. There are needs all around us. And, you know, I don't know how many sermons <laughs> have been preached on why does pain and suffering exist in this world. And as believers, the opportunity for us to bring healing into these things and, and to be salt and light and to meet physical needs, have an opportunity to talk about our greater purpose and why we're here. You know, this is kind of the core of who we are. I'm assuming the next question would be, what does ministry look like with projects and specifically with uh, refugee camps? There's some really neat programs. We've been fortunate. We have a relationship with the American Bible Society. They've developed trauma healing programs. And so tailored, when we go into disaster situations and, and in refugee situations, the camp that I mentioned in Tanzania it's a little bit more complicated story. The camp in Tanzania pre-existed. It was actually from a previous disaster, a man-made disaster. This camp, if you want to go Google it, it's called Niragusu. When we got there in 2015, they had moved 100,000 Burundians into this camp that was already existing and home to about 60,000 people that were from the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And the people from the Democratic Republic of Congo had been there for almost 20 years already. And so the camp was expanded and we came in and were providing aid to this additional 100,000 people that got brought in. And I share that because the camp being 20 years old, there were multiple churches that were already built and in this camp. And so there were pastors in the camp. And so as a part of our outreach from a ministry standpoint, while we're providing access to safe water, and by the way, the reason we're allowed in that camp, which was heavily controlled by the UN, is because we're coming with water. 
And as a result of being able to come with water, we have the opportunity to have a ministry outreach as well. And so we actually engaged with the existing pastor network that was in the camp and bringing programs like this trauma healing program that was developed by the American Bible Society that was specifically tailored for people that have just gone through traumatic experiences. And the things that folks endured fleeing a country and ultimately getting into this camp are things that we don't want to think about. The feedback from this program that was shared with me was there was at one point, there was a time where I have a photo that's room full of refugees. And as this program was being rolled out, there was a question that was asked, how many of you lost a loved one as you made your journey on foot from Burundi into this camp? And almost 100% of the people in the room raised their hand. And the follow-up question to that was, how many of you witnessed it firsthand? And like 75% of the hands like stayed up. And so I share that from a perspective of, you know, when you think about what people have gone through and the opportunity that we have from a ministry standpoint to help them start to understand what does the grieving process look like? What is, at some point, you know, how do you even broach the topic of forgiveness? These are things that are just not healthy to hold on to. And so the opportunity that we have to minister to people in those kinds of situations is really special and it's also unique, uh, but it also is something that wouldn't be allowed if we hadn't led with quality programming that's tied to water. Yeah, George, that's pretty incredible, the work that you're doing. And to have 800 people working on that all over the world is just astounding. And there's so many different types of needs, like you were saying, from disaster relief to installing more permanent solutions for community development. I'm curious if you partner with other organizations and have you seen kind of holistic community development that starts with water and builds from there? that has long-lasting, sustainable effects on an entire community. So, yes, and we have some incredible partners, and there's some other amazing ministries that are out there that are doing good work. And our model for how we engage with local church, with uh, church ministry, is one that we shamelessly copied, Living Water. They had an amazing program that they developed with that. And as we look to do things, we certainly don't want to reinvent the wheel. We want to be seen as being generous, to other charities. And so anything that we've developed, we're an open book. If it's something that doesn't cost us something, you know, any kind of design or anything that we've invested in, but doesn't have a recurring cost, we, you know, make it available. You know, there's like a, a Hope International, Peter Greer's group that set a terrific example of being generous in his book, Rooting for Your Rivals is one that we've gone through internally, and we have an annual partner summit that we invite our donors to. We also invite our nonprofit partners. I think we probably have at least 40 other nonprofits or charities that we have a relationship with that has been a part of an intentional strategy of trying to engage with other groups to be a resource, to be helpful. It actually started out, I mentioned earlier that we've got some amazing corporate partners, that relationships that we've developed. And those relationships, it's funny, in the early days of Water Mission, you know, my parents were our only donors and we were just really bad at raising funds and raising support. And almost out of desperation, it looks like a genius strategy, but it wasn't what we were thinking at the time. We actually went to some of these corporations that were making products that we were purchasing and we asked if we could get set up to purchase them direct. And ideally, would they give them to us at cost, something that wouldn't hurt them? Worst case, would they set us up as like with their best distributor pricing? 
you know, the funny thing is you think about as a nonprofit, if you're calling a company and trying to talk to like the head of their foundation, good luck, right? First, even getting through, much less getting a call back. But if you're calling the sales folks and telling them that you want to get set up as a distributor, you know, they're like ringing you back before you even finish leaving the message, you know, because that's what they're there for. It turned out to be a really great strategy for getting a foot in the door. And then ultimately, as we started using products and telling the stories of what we were doing with these things, it got the attention of the marketing and communications people and ultimately opened doors for us to get in to be able to be sponsored through a lot of companies have corporate social responsibility initiatives. And it just made sense that it would align as they align the work that they do with um, and the products that they develop with these really feel good water projects that we were doing. We in turn saw that we had the ability to, we were getting access to products at really good prices to turn around and offer that to the NGO world. And so, you know, these 40 other charities that we have relationships with, they actually come to us and source products range from generators to water quality test kits to solar panels, you name it. And uh, it's kind of this weird dynamic where we started filling the role of like almost like a distributor to the humanitarian world. And we used that as an opportunity to kind of start a conversation around, you know, somebody might come to us and need some pumps or something like that. And it would give us a chance to say, hear about what they're doing with their project and potentially offer some engineering consulting and design support for how a structure is being built. And, oh, you're building something in Haiti in and around the Port-au-Prince area. You might want to consider that there's a seismic safety factor that needs to be included as you're building your elevated tower for your water tank. And so as you think about these things that are very, very controlled and standardized within countries like the United States, that our ability to kind of start to bring some of those things into some of these conversations. And and it's been a real blessing. Uh, we've got some amazing nonprofit partners that have come along the years as well. Most recently, we decided to try and formalize that effort of being a resource by starting another charity. That charity is called the Global Water Center. And I don't know if that's something that you guys have heard of or not. But the idea with breaking it off and starting it as a separate charity was really to hopefully see it expedited and facilitated and being a resource and also to remove any kind of concern that it was just a water mission initiative as opposed to something that was out there to serve the sector. Yeah, I love the spirit of generosity behind so much of what you do. You know, we talk so much about financial generosity, which is an important level of generosity and a lot of our conversations focus on that. But exactly what you guys are doing is, I think, what we are called to as believers, as, you know, we have everything that we have, including engineering knowledge, distributor connections, things like that, is given to us by God. And you guys are making the most of that by bringing up everybody around you and, I think, setting an incredible example. I wanted to go back to the projects for a second and interested to hear what kind of the long-term project looks like down the line, you know, five, 10 years of maybe some of your earlier projects that were in the kind of long-term community development side of things, as opposed to the disaster relief side. And what have you learned over the years about how to ensure that those projects are still going strong many years down the line? We've certainly had our learning experiences over the years. And some of the things that we did in the early days, we look back on it and they're just kind of in horror. (laughs) I remember we came out of the gates when Water Mission was first started with a really strong technical background. That was the world that we lived in. That was our training. And in our early days, 
our thought and mindset was that if we got into a community and we provided them with treatment systems and provided some basic training, that they would just take it and run with it because everybody they knew how important safe water was. And it was like, you know, it was like giving somebody a gift that they would immediately value and they would do what's necessary to figure out how they would make it work in their community. I share that we would show up in a community with a water treatment system. And in the early days, you know, sometimes some of these communities, we had local coordination through, we had some church partners that would pick communities for where we would go. We'd show up in some of these communities and we find out once we got there that they didn't even know we were coming. And so, you know, just basic things around planning and how you engage. And it was a really steep learning curve in the early days about how important it was to figure out the people processes and systems that I mentioned. And that, you know, the best designed systems and best implemented systems are going to fail if there's not a good management plan around how things are going to get run and maintained and how our expenses going to get met over time. You know, going back to the early days, I'll never forget sitting down with my parents and we'd, uh, we'd been going back and forth to Honduras and we were having a conversation. We really need to have somebody on the ground that can go follow up on these things when we're not there. And so we ended up, the, our first employee in Honduras was the son-in-law of a pastor from one of the churches that we had partnered with. There wasn't like an exhaustive, you know, who are we looking for? What do the skill sets need to be? It was, uh, this guy's good with his hands and he's available. And so we ended up hiring this guy. And I don't think, we didn't even know at the time that he wasn't even Honduran, he was Cuban. And the interesting thing was that as we got to know him, it turned out he actually wasn't really all that happy in Honduras. And he didn't actually like Honduran people all that much. The only people that he disliked like more than Hondurans were his American supervisors. And so, you know, so it, it just so many, I mean, looking back on it, I mean, yes, those are just kind of stupid mistakes that you learn from. At the same time, we look at that as you've got to constantly be looking at how you improve from those kinds of things. And yes, okay, so that was not the brightest decision. Let's not repeat that. <laughs> Let's do things better as we look at uh, how we move forward and look at it as an expensive continuing education class. We've been very intentional about building out teams that are focused on kind of those three key areas that I mentioned. So one, we do need to make sure that we still have solid designs, but those designs also need to understand that local cultural context and supply chain limitations. So when we're going into a community, what ultimately every project is a turnkey design, but it's done in coordination with the community from a planning standpoint. They're not like outsiders and all of a sudden we show up and here's the solution. And then our staff on the ground, you know, being intentional about making sure we have the right kind of skills from a construction standpoint, from an implementation standpoint. And then that third piece, the people processes and systems. When we engage around a community development project, we're probably spending somewhere between 500 and 700 hours in the community. We have a facilitated process that essentially starts with just a community-wide meeting to ultimately the community electing who the governance board is going to be for this utility that's going to be formed. We're holding their hand the entire way through the process of how that happens. Once that governance board is in place, then we're spending an incredible amount of time 
building out the operations plan. We have a financial workshop that we go through to help them understand all the costs associated with the infrastructure that's being put in place. There's an exercise on just basic straight line depreciation of all the major assets that come along with the water system. And then with that, from a budgeting standpoint, monthly targets for savings for how much money needs to be going into the bank so that they can replace, they'll have money in 10 years to replace something as opposed to they get the 10 years out and there's no money and project for an entire community comes falling apart because of a hundred dollar need for a reinvestment or something along those lines. And ultimately with that budgeting framework, what we're doing is we're tying all of that back to water sales. So when somebody comes to the tap to fill their container, what does it cost to fill a five-gallon bucket or a 20-liter container? What should that price point be to make sure that they're covering all their day-to-day operational costs, but also those savings targets? And by doing that, they understand they've owned the process. We facilitate it. We don't just come in and say, this is what you need to do. We kind of walk them through this thing and we kind of have guardrails up around making sure, you know, they can go back and forth and wander and meander a little bit. But ultimately, we make sure that we cross the finish line of where we need to go. So it's definitely been an exhaustive effort in building out all those skill sets. Another major game changer for us was even with those things, if you're a donor for a project, how do you know a project's working? The easiest thing in the early days was you had to go visit, and that's not an easy thing. And our donors, you know, the likelihood that our donors are going to go visit the projects that they fund is pretty small. And so that comes back to this accountability conversation that I was talking about earlier with charities. You know, the people that pay for things are not the ones that get it. And so back in, I think it was 2012, 2013, we were really fortunate. Somehow we got a conversation started with a division of IBM and they wanted to invest and help us in some way. And so we ended up going down this path and they helped us build out a remote monitoring platform. And so today we can go and we have automated flow data for a project. So we have a very simple device called a totalizing flow meter that has a wire that comes out of it that we can hook up to a satellite modem. And we can go online and see real time how many liters of water are pumped every day in the project. We started building that out in 2012, 2013. And I think as of 2017, we have been putting them on every project that we put in place. That's driven a level of accountability internally that has been really healthy and really valuable for us to one, as you think about the countries that we work in, we're in Mexico, Honduras, Haiti, Peru, Uganda, Kenya, Malawi, Tanzania, and then Indonesia. You know, our staff that are engaging with the communities, our country director needs to know that the projects are functioning. Our country director is going to get out to projects, but, you know, not constantly. And so there's a level of accountability that comes with that. And then we need to know that our country director is running our program in the way that it needs to be. And the ultimate deliverable is making sure the projects function. And so we have the ability to look at it without, and it's not to say we don't go and travel to these countries and spend time in them and time in the communities. But when you talk about being able to see what's happening on a day-to-day basis versus visiting a community twice a year, you know, there's a huge difference in accountability that comes with that. So, you know, what we started out with remote monitoring was flow. That's pretty basic. And that's also something that we can automate. What we've incorporated that's manually updated now is actually monitoring ongoing water quality testing. So making sure the water's safe and also monitoring the financial aspects of the project. So we actually look at monthly income statements, income and expense. 
And we also look at balance sheet numbers and making sure that where is the project? It's one thing to say that water is flowing today, but if they're not hitting financial targets from a savings standpoint, when it comes time to replace something that's expensive, that's going to be problematic. So, so yeah, we've come a long way from not having any staff in country and showing up in communities that didn't even necessarily know we were coming and just dropping off equipment, providing some basic training on how to run the equipment to, you know, full-fledged financial models and spending months of time building out these kinds of things. And the really beautiful thing with that is when you go and do that, you build really deep relationships with the people that live in the community. These are typically the leaders in the community. The greatest thing that we know about from a faith aspect is that the greatest opportunity is through building relationships. So we have this opportunity to go and meet this physical need with water, and we do that in building really deep relationships and friendships that we then have the opportunity to take that platform that we've been given in the community and put the local church on it and equip the local church for ministry in the community in a more effective way by providing them tools and training and support and also by endorsing them and saying, you know, this is why we're here. There's something more important than safe water. George, it's been really impressive to hear about how things have progressed at Water Mission since its founding and all the lessons that you've learned and the technology and the relationships and the model that you have now is really, really impressive to hear about. What do you look forward to most when you think about the future? We've been fortunate that we've been able to go deeper with our projects. You know, the early projects that I mentioned, we had very limited resources and that drove a lot of our programming. You know, we do a water project, we would have maybe a point of access for safe water in a community. And what we're talking about today with essentially with doing many municipal water systems is much more extensive distribution that has a much bigger health impact. And it's also important because when you think about how does the project be sustainable, there's a financial aspect to that as well where there has to be income coming from people purchasing water. And the challenge that we've seen is people in the communities that we serve by and large, they don't value safe water so much as proximity to water. The safe water kind of comes with the distribution side of things that ultimately we see makes projects more robust and more sustainable. And the other thing, too, is coming from nothing. My experience and my perspective on what we've done is literally 21 years ago when we first got started, we had three engineers and a Spanish major. (laughs) And now as you think about the skills that we have to be able to go be effective in the work that we're doing There's still very much a huge need for engineering acumen as part of it, but there's also incredibly talented staff from a community development standpoint and just kind of all of the things that are necessary to be able to go be effective in the work that we're doing. So, yeah, it's exciting. I think some of the things that we have that we're working on now is being very regionally focused and this idea of saturating a region with safe water. What's neat about that and what's exciting about that is, you know, you do a project here, a project there, and individual projects have significant impact on the people that live in those communities. But when you do them all in one region, all of a sudden you get to see a regional impact. And what's exciting about that is because obviously the next level from that is multiple regions and uh, ultimately the goals of bringing access to safe water to entire countries. We can start to see how that is going to happen. So those are really exciting things. Well, George, how can people learn more about Water Mission and get connected? 
Yeah, so certainly our website, ordermission.org, is a great place to go and find out a little bit more about who we are and what we do. There's all kinds of information that's available there that speaks to kind of our core of who we are, what we believe, our approach, all of those kinds of things. And there's also a litany of areas where people can find engagement opportunities as well. And, you know, over the years, we started out talking about groups like Ron Blue and NCF. And as we've engaged with people that have been focused on helping people understand what God wants them to be doing with their lives and being generous. One of the things that was shared was this idea that people have the ability to invest in their time, talent, treasure, and influence. You know, all of those are opportunities that are available to find out more on our website for a way to engage. So, Yeah, George, you share about how people have so much that God has given them that they can freely use to help build God's kingdom, as he's called them. And you talked about how your parents funded this and didn't take any salary from Water Mission to make sure that it got launched and uh, corporations that have come alongside and freely given. So generosity clearly is just woven throughout your whole story at Water Mission and the way that you freely give to other organizations and ministries that are like-minded and have a need that you're uniquely suited to fill. So it's cool to see that just as part of the DNA of the organization. And uh, as we wrap up this episode, we just want to leave our listeners with a practical action that they can take to step into their role as stewards and to manage what God's given them wisely. So do you have a suggestion for our listeners today? Yeah. So I've got two thoughts with that. And obviously, I'm pretty passionate about what I do and the work that Water Mission is doing. And as we think about investing and the ability to impact someone's life, you know, as we think about solving the global water crisis, we see that as having kind of a foundation level approach around addressing some of the issues associated with poverty, allowing people to live physically healthy lives, allows them to work harder, allows them to go to school and not have education interrupted. And so there is an economical impact associated with what we do that is a very relevant thing. And so as I think about something that's worthwhile to invest in, you know, every project's different, but on average, the cost to bring access to safe water to somebody with a community development project, like what we've been talking about, ranges from $20 to $50. And when you think about the ability to impact one person's life, that's really not that much money. And that's a get something up and started that then is going to sustain itself. So it's not a recurring thing. So certainly that's one thing. The other thing is, you know, I live this day to day and I see it day to day and I still have to remind myself as well, just the responsibility that comes with the things that we've been blessed with. As I reflect on the things and the decisions that I've made in my life and thinking about this from other people and other professionals, there are people that are self-made. They've been incredibly successful and they attribute that to making good decisions and good business practices and things like that. The one thing that none of us ever had any control over is where we were born and who we were born to. And as I look at the people in the communities that we serve and some of the conditions that people are born into versus the condition that I was born into, you know, whether there's a faith alignment or not, you know, we believe and understand that God's put us here for a purpose and that he expects us to love our neighbor and do something about that. You know, for folks that maybe don't fully get that, you can't help but stop and start to think that one thing that you have no control over whatsoever that you've been born into with this just immediate incredible advantage that maybe there's some level of responsibility that comes with that and how you live your life. So I would definitely encourage people 
people to go deeper into into pressing into what God's purpose is for them in their lives. I definitely agree with that. There's so much to be excited about the work that you're doing. And then, like you mentioned, the Global Water Center just serving as a way to further collaborate and share resources. Such a critical need. And like you said, often the first thing that people need in response to a disaster and something that communities really need solved in order to thrive. So thank you for all the work that you're doing, the leadership that you've provided to Water Mission. And thank you so much for generously sharing your time with us today to share your story. Thank you, Cody. And thank you, Keelan. Appreciate what you guys do and highlighting all of these amazing ministries and efforts. It's certainly encouraging to hear other stories and That's also something that we're expected to do and fellowship with each other and also to encourage each other in our journeys. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you have questions about setting a financial finish line, the finish line movement, or anything else you heard on the show today, we would love to hear from you. And now I have a quick question for you. Do you know anyone who is living a life filled with generosity, purpose, and mission? If so, we would love to talk to them. They don't need to have a financial finish line and they don't need to have all the answers. They just need a heart to steward God's wealth to the best of their ability. If you know someone like that, we would be honored if you would connect us. You can reach us on Instagram at finishlinepledge, through our website at finishlinepledge.com, or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. Finally, if you want to find any references or links from today's show, you can always find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 79. That's all we have for today. We'll see you next time. 